Hello, everyone, and welcome to podcast number 20. Uh, my name is Naaman Joe Granderson, and I am joined by my fellow host, Joe McNamara. Good evening, everyone. A big thank you to our last guest, Rachel Moses, who talked about career progression, equality, diversity and inclusion, and her humanitarian work. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So, we are pleased to introduce our guest for this evening, Amy Rylance, who will be discussing her role at Prostate Cancer UK and the impact of COVID. Um, hi, Amy. Hi, nice to be here. <laughs> Thank you. So, Amy, please could you tell us what your current role is and how you got there? Yeah, of course. So, I have the lovely job title of Head of Improving Care, um, which um, I quite like as a job title because in the voluntary sector we have a lot of meaningless job titles and at least Head of Improving Care kind of says what it does on the tin or no, does what it says on the tin that way around. You know, I, I head up teams whose role is to improve prostate cancer care. Um, in terms of how I got here, um, I started my professional life actually in, in youth work, working with young people and um, particularly young people with disabilities and did a few roles in that space. And from a kind of world of working in disabilities, I moved into a role working with the NHS in Bradford, looking at health inequalities and got very, very interested in how, how we help the health system to make care better for all of the citizens in the area and how we kind of challenge some of the persistent inequalities in healthcare. Um, and I was working up in Bradford District, which um, my accent is not naturally Yorkshire, it's, it's not where I'm from, but um, was very happily working up there. And then unfortunately, my dad got diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, and sadly, his diagnosis was of advanced prostate cancer. Um, his cancer was very aggressive and suddenly Bradford felt a very long way from home. So I made the decision or, or we, my family, made the decision that we were going to relocate down south to be a bit closer um, to family and um, move, move the family down to London. I started working for Diabetes UK, again, in this kind of health improvement type role. Um, Unfortunately, my dad's cancer was very aggressive um, and he died after about 18 months after his diagnosis. Um, but I was working at Diabetes UK. I, I was there for five and a half years. I found it a really fulfilling and exciting role. And then this role came up at Prostate Cancer UK. And I think it just felt like it was one of those things where, oh, that's where I need to be because actually it's a cause that I care hugely about it's it's a skill set that I feel I have um, so yeah found myself at Prostate Cancer UK um, and able to bring all that experience um, to, to this cause. Oh, th thank you for sharing a story about your dad I suppose there's something when you have that personal connection you can really empathize with what other people can go through as well. Yeah um, absolutely I think it's um, I think it's given me a, a perspective in my professional life that, you know, obviously my dad's case was um, not typical of all men with prostate cancer and prostate cancer is a very diverse disease and, and I'm very aware of that. But there are moments of clarity, I suppose, in my role where I can see it from the perspective of a family, which I think 
can be quite helpful. Amy, can I ask, before your dad got diagnosed, had you heard much about prostate cancer? Were you kind of aware of it as as something that men would typically get later on in life? You know, did you have any knowledge of prostate cancer at all? Well, so funny enough, my my granddad, my my mum's dad has prostate cancer, but I or had prostate cancer. He has now sadly died, but he did not die of prostate cancer, and, and he was very much at the opposite end of the spectrum. He was a man who had prostate cancer that didn't require treatment for many, many, many years. Um, and I think I was very much of the perception that prostate cancer was something that a lot of men got. It wasn't a big deal. You know, that whole line about, you know, prostate cancer is something men die with, not of. And I, I remember really strongly believing that. And I remember I remember when my dad was diagnosed, I remember talking to some people about it and we, we knew that my dad's diagnosis was quite serious, but the kind of reaction we got from people was, oh, don't worry, you know, prostate cancer is no big deal. And I think that kind of understanding of the, the range of prostate cancer, the, the, the differences in the disease, you know, I would never want any man with a low risk disease to be overtreated. And I am incredibly grateful that um, my granddad on my mum's side didn't have all of the side effects and consequences of aggressive treatment. But I also want people to understand that not all prostate cancer is something that is benign and that we don't need to worry about, but actually it is a disease that affects different people in different ways. Yeah, and um, it's quite a a key point that I've heard as well is that actually lots of men who get prostate cancer die of something else and they can live for quite a long time and comfortably. Um, there's some, as an example of a patient you probably know, uh, Tony Collier, um, yeah. someone who I've worked with sort of just briefly with Radiotherapy UK. So he does, I mean, he runs marathons uh, all over the yeah. world and stuff like that. And it, it's that an sort of thing. An incredible role model. Exactly. And that's that's something that you know lots of other I know some patients who I've directed to towards Tony's story which he shared and it's really nice to see you know they're thinking well okay I do have this diagnosis but there is still a bit of hope um, kind of moving forward if that makes sense yeah absolutely and and actually funnily enough at work today we were having a discussion around the fear of cancer and and the role that fear of cancer can play in actually preventing people from being diagnosed because it's such a scary thing that that we don't want to engage with it we don't want to think about it and actually you know understanding that prostate cancer early prostate cancer is hugely treatable um, and that many men don't require treatment they can be safely monitored is a really important message but it isn't something that we should be saying you know this is a scary horrible thing we should be saying you know actually early prostate cancer is very treatable don't be afraid of it i suppose with what's happened in the last 18 months um whether it's early stage late stage and then we're going to get into it a bit more detail but um i suppose some of the earlier stage from my experience they were delayed treatment because of covid so what you know from from your point of view what's the impact of covid been on sort of prostate cancer patients and prostate cancer in general in the UK? Yeah, I mean, I suppose if I talk about men who already had a diagnosis of prostate cancer before the pandemic, um, I think, you know, there was 
obviously a huge amount of anxiety around what did COVID mean if you had prostate cancer and we um, our health information teams worked very hard to create information to support people to understand COVID and COVID in relation to prostate cancer and whether having prostate cancer made them more vulnerable to COVID and and you know in those early months of the pandemic we had a huge amount of you know engagement with that content as everyone was trying to learn how how you live in this world. I think as time has gone on, the kind of impact on men who are diagnosed has shifted and changed. Um, obviously, in the early months, a lot of people were facing treatment delays, but that seems to have been less an issue as the pandemic has gone on and more what we hear about is kind of challenges around support and the ability to access your clinical team and, and to have that kind of broader holistic support in, in living well with prostate cancer. And um, I think there is a whole other issue in terms of the men who may have prostate cancer but are not yet diagnosed. Um, and we know that the pandemic has had a massive impact on men presenting in primary care. Um, so we can see that treatment numbers dropped dramatically um, in the period since COVID and that, and that those aren't men kind of sitting on waiting lists, that actually these are men who have never presented in primary care. Uh, we know that the number of referrals from primary care dropped by over 55,000. Um, and, you know, I think prostate cancer is often a, it's a relatively slow growing cancer and so you know in those first few months of the pandemic um it wasn't a top concern around those kind of delays because there was a feeling that you know most men wouldn't be harmed by a delay of a few months but you know we are now it's it's longer and longer that covid has been having an impact with sort of 20 21 months now i i lose track um but COVID's been with us for a very long time. And what we're not yet seeing is any kind of, um, we're not finding those men who didn't present in the system. So the referral levels are more normal now. They're more like what we would have seen pre-pandemic. Um, but there's no sense of catch up. There's no sense of more men coming into the system and finding those thousands of men who were never diagnosed in that period since March 2020. Yeah, I think to add to the quite shocking, I suppose, 55,000 statistic, I think I read on the Prostate Cancer UK website, that's about 13,000 fewer patients who are not being treated for prostate cancer. And I think overall, with the total number of missing cancers, which I'm sure everyone has seen in, in the media at the moment, it makes up of a third um, or one in three, um, yeah. which, is, which is quite a lot, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I think... You know, there are various factors for that, but I think one of the big things that we talk a lot about with, with men and in our awareness messaging is that most early prostate cancer doesn't have symptoms. And so, you know, in a environment where the NHS is under pressure, there's nothing that's there kind of bothering a man and, and nudging them that they should seek help 
because actually they don't normally have symptoms in those early stages. And so for us, the key message is that men need to understand their risk and they need to understand that it's not bothering a GP to have that conversation. You know, we, we've done a lot of sort of audience insight, speaking to men, speaking to men in those at-risk groups. And the phrase that comes up time and time again is, you know, if I don't have symptoms, I don't want to bother the GP. They're really busy at the moment. And it's, it's lovely because it's such a respectful thing and it's such a, you know, way of saying, you know, a way of kind of showing respect to GPs and to the NHS, but it's not necessarily the right thing for those men and just reassuring them that GPs don't see it as bothering them to talk to them about PSA and, and their risk of prostate cancer. Yeah, and, and just quickly, if anyone doesn't know, PSA is prostate-specific antigen, so one of the blood tests that can help. I suppose one element with what you said is the earlier stage prostate patients, some of them who were delayed, they were still having a form of treatment. So if anyone doesn't know, so like androgen deprivation therapy, so like hormone treatment to suppress testosterone, um, that sort of thing. So I think with that, as you said, just to back up that um, the risk was a little bit reduced because although they were delayed, they were still getting a form of treatment, which would keep that PSA level low. So, um, but I know there was a lot of media attention from people like Deborah James, so Bao Babe, about getting to your GP if you've got problems, and that has kind of caught up again with winter coming up. So, mm. no, I think as well, it's also about having those conversations at home. We've said it before in previous um, podcasts, but you know, having knowledge of what symptoms you could expect with um, developing prostate cancer doesn't just have to be a male learning about those symptoms what are you looking out for it could be anyone in the family kind of sharing that information learning that knowledge and I know Prostate Cancer UK is a really good resource for that to be able to go on and learn what some of those symptoms are so that people can have those conversations I certainly know with grandparents you know as soon as my grandfather was starting to get up in the evenings going to the toilet lots I was like oh have you had have you had your prostate checked recently always a great thing that your granddaughter is going to bring up at the dinner table Um, renowned for having those kinds of conversations with my family, but it is a really important conversation. And it might be that one comment that a family member makes that encourages someone to go to their GP and go and get checked out. Amy, in terms of kind of what you did over COVID, you know, from a prostate cancer UK perspective, what, what was the, what was important for you that you got across to people that were accessing the website or accessing the resources yeah i mean i i think there's a couple of things i think for for men with prostate cancer and for their families it was really important to be there as a as a point of support as a point of stability as a point of reliable information um and increasingly we recognize the kind of mental health burden um, and, you know, we're, we're currently piloting one of our support services is a counselling service because what we saw, we have a, a wonderful helpline, which is staffed by specialist nurses who are there to answer questions and provide support and talk through issues with men or their families or, or anyone who's got questions about prostate cancer. But what we've seen in, in recent years is that more and more of those questions are related to mental well-being, mental health. And so 
you know, making sure that we are able to offer that support in the most appropriate way. Um, that was really important. I think from my team's perspective, a lot of our work was healthcare professional facing. And so thinking about how do we support healthcare professionals through this time? So for example, um, in the very early days of the pandemic, in fact, I know it was the day lockdown was announced, I was messaging with some clinicians and saying, you know, what can we as a charity do that's helpful right now? And the answer came back around the challenges of docetaxel during a, a pandemic, you know, that in a pandemic, you don't want to be giving a man a drug which is going to impair his immune system. And clinicians wanted access to one of the newer hormonal therapies um, that wouldn't have that same impact on a man's immune system, but would give the same life extending benefits. And at the time in England, there wasn't permission to prescribe those drugs in, in that early indication. So a, a new diagnosis of hormone sensitive advanced disease and chemotherapy was the only um, available prescription alongside ADT. And so, you know, being able to hear what the challenges were for clinicians, we as a team reached out to lots of stakeholders and we worked very hard in those first few weeks to make the case that um, these new hormonal therapies be made available as part of the COVID exemption um, rules. And, and we were really, really pleased when enzalutamide was approved for, for use during the pandemic because it meant that those men could have the life-extending treatment without having that kind of immunocompromised effect of, of the chemotherapy. So I guess that's an example of something really practical that we were trying to do. But I think as the pandem pandemic wore on, a lot of what we did was around creating spaces where clinicians could share best practice. So, you know, I mean, everyone has Zoom fatigue, but actually we had some really um, wonderful Zoom meetings where we brought together people from across the country talking about how they were overcoming some of the challenges in their systems, how they were making care better, how they were dealing with delays, whatever it might be, and, and creating those spaces where people could share best practice. Um, because, you know, we were all having to learn afresh, how do you work in this world? And rather than learn it all on our own, why don't we see if we can learn from each other? And um, so, yeah, we, we, we did quite a lot of that through, through the pandemic. I definitely know from speaking to lots of colleagues through lots of different sectors, whether that's the charity, HEIs, clinical colleagues, COVID definitely brought a community of practice together, didn't it? And just the speed at which we were able to adapt to certain things and share that information has been amazing and something I really do hope does continue. Um, I think it's definitely an opportunity for us to exploit some of the things that were opened up to us as a result of the pandemic. Amy, I know Prostate Cancer UK are fans. Can I say fans of therapeutic radiographers? Um, they are very inclusive. Very much so. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Big fans. Yeah. <laughs> so, Amy, what's been your experience of working with therapeutic radiographers? It is one of the professions that obviously we we contribute heavily within oncology, cancer care, and yet sometimes, especially looking at some of the policy and guidelines, um, looking at prehabilitation, rehabilitation, we often get forgotten. 
Do you think there's a reason for that? Are we to blame ourselves? I, I honestly, I don't know the answer to that question. And um, I had the great pleasure of working with a large number of therapeutic radiotherapists um, in a, a recent program that we ran focused on support for men, which is how I met Naaman. Um, and I think what came across in that program was a real commitment to see the patient in the whole and to think about how how that patient can be supported in the most appropriate way, how that care can be delivered in the most appropriate way, thinking about things like prehab, you know, and I think what I've really recognized and learned because I have to say, you know, until very recently, I had never heard of therapeutic radiotherapists. I don't think in, you know, despite having worked in healthcare, I hadn't worked in cancer and it wasn't a profession that was, you know, at the tip of my tongue. But I think what I've learned through working with with um, your colleagues is that yours is a profession which is so grounded in, you know, what's best for the patient and how do we make that happen? And that's a real pleasure to work to work with, with you and your colleagues um, and to see that, you know, make a difference for the men with prostate cancer across the UK. Now, Naaman's laughing at me because, Amy, everyone in the audience who knows me will know I'm going to have to pull, pull you up on. It's therapeutic radiographer, not radiotherapists. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I apologise. <laughs> I'm renowned now, Amy. I've got a really okay. bad reputation. No, it's fine. <laughs> if I get it wrong, tell me I get it wrong. It's fine. <laughs> So, Amy, your role, it, as you said at the start, it sounds absolutely amazing. What 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 do you do to improve care? What do you think is really important? How does your role fundamentally help improve care for our patients? Yeah. Um, so I think the first thing to say is I don't do it on my own. <laughs> I have an amazing team of people um, who do who do wonderful things. But I think my my team's kind of split into different areas so um one area is we have an education team who are more focused on the kind of traditional clinical skills based education a lot of their work focuses on primary care and making sure that you know at the very start of the pathway um gps practice nurses have that key knowledge that they need um next we have teams that really focus on change and how we deliver change so whether that's about policy and you know what nice is saying what the smc up in scotland are saying you know how how we actually influence and um, what what the rules say almost but then also how that's rolled out across the country and how you know if there's a treatment breakthrough or, or anything like that how that actually becomes a reality um and then the third team uh, is our team focused on improvement programs and our improvement programs are really focused on understanding that the people best placed to make change and to improve care are the people who work in that system the people who really understand that system and they you know the nhs is packed full of incredible people who have this real energy and desire and passion to improve care. I 
what I have learned over the years is that that isn't always lined up with the the knowledge of actually how to go about making improvement. And often what we see is that people can be brilliant clinically and brilliant with patients, but not necessarily have the skills or the experience to deliver a change project because they're very different skill sets. And so our improvement programs really focus on, well, how do we take these brilliant clinicians who care so much and how do we give them some of those skills in delivering change, in leadership, in kind of building their community of practice, in influencing others, um, so that we can affect change in hospitals up and down the country. Um, you know, in, in a couple of years, I've been at Prostate Cancer UK. We've had 140 clinicians go through those programmes. That's 140 teams and trusts up and down the country who are changing the way that they deliver care for hundreds of patients and um, to make that care better and, and i think for me that's something i think that prostate cancer uk are doing which is quite different to what happens in a lot of the rest of the health system but i think is so impactful i definitely having looked at prostate cancer uk you know sheffield hallam university we we affiliated with Prostate Cancer UK and, and run some modules and things. But I know from looking at that work how important it is for people to have access to education, to be able to access accredited courses, to be able to upskill themselves, but also to then go back into practice and say, this is now an area of specialism. Um, and obviously, Prostate Cancer UK funds some amazing research is that another kind of arm of what Prostate Cancer UK are looking to develop even further? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, my my teams, my colleagues, we work very closely with research so that when we get those research breakthroughs that are practice changing, that actually those go into practice as quickly as they possibly can do. Um, so, you know, our, our research strategy is very focused on investing in the areas that are going to make the biggest difference for men and then making sure that when we get that evidence base, that we, we move that into implementation, that we move that into the way that men receive care up and down the UK. I think one of the things you mentioned about Enzalutamide earlier, just in case anyone doesn't know, it's for advanced prostate cancer and it's like a hormone treatment. That's sort of the things you're saying about improving care and using clinicians around you to sort of help that kind of, or not be pushed through, but go into clinical practice a bit more. I think in, in our world, um, in, so in radiography as a whole, um, so Michael was going to get this wrong, magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, MRI, which is a lot easier to say, <laughs> is better at visualising a prostate. Um, so, you know, it shows the edges of the prostate more clearly. It's a lot sharper. Um, and I think for aggressive disease as well, it's usually easier to see. So in 20, 2018, um, there was an MR LINAC, which was so a linear accelerator. Um, I think that's kind of a, it's a huge improvement for patients in the sense it's better imaging. It's more accurate. Um, there's less extra radiation dose being put through. Um, for those who don't know, sometimes for prostate patients, they can have bladder or rectum 
um, sort of prep. So they need a full bladder, um, keeping the prostate sort of nicely situated where it should be. And the rectum's nice and empty. And on an MRI, that shows up a lot better. Um, so I know, Joe, there was some um, something you wanted to discuss around MRI as well. Yeah, so there was um, just looking through Prostate Cancer UK website, really, just some of the research that currently is going on about a new type of scan, uh, looking specifically at whole body MRI, a better way of detecting and monitoring prostate cancer that's actually spread to the bone. Um, and obviously looking for those patients, it's those advances in technology, software, training, education in the staff that will ultimately save lives or improve the quality of lives for patients living with and beyond cancer. And I think, you know, investment is absolutely key. I know radiotherapy colleagues that up and down the country that are doing charity fundraising events, trying to raise money so that the department can buy an MR LINAC. It seems crazy that healthcare workers are having to fund their departments to make cancer patients survive. Um, you know, that's the crux of it. And it is it is really crazy that that's happen, having to happen. And it is as a result of underinvestment. If we're able to petition more to get that support from government to invest in radiotherapy, which we know is a really effective type of treatment, it costs a lot less than other types of treatment, um, then I definitely would shout about it. And I know, Amy, you've been part, as Prostate Cancer UK, you've been part, haven't you, of the Catch Up to Cancer campaign and that kind of coalition have you have you kind of got experience of things that happened as a result of COVID that you feel are going to be beneficial, that the government might take some notice about maybe some inequities, uh, inequalities that are evident within cancer care? I think access to imaging, but also access to, to good quality imaging has been recognised as being a, a real priority and you know, I'm hopeful that, you know, I think we, we're kind of hearing good news about investment, but, it, you know, it's, there's always a question of how and when, where that delivers. I hope that there will be progress on that. Um, I think it's, yeah, um, I think that the pandemic did allow clinicians to think differently about the ways that they delivered care and it did accelerate some changes in ways that are good. I know that kind of pre-pandemic we were doing a lot of work around how how we make follow-up care work better for men and for clinical teams and where things like remote follow-up can actually be a really good thing for the men and for their clinical teams you know if it's a question of just a PSA follow-up actually does a man need to go and sit in an outpatient appointment all day worrying about what his result is or is it better that he can check his own result um, on the system 24 hours after he's done the test and see that he's all clear and if he doesn't have any questions he doesn't need to see his clinical team and that frees up the clinical team's time to focus on the patients who really need to be seen um, so you know and I think that that was already gaining traction in the NHS, but I think that kind of thing will inevitably move faster and further as a result of of the pandemic. So, 
you know, I think it's very easy to see, you know, without a doubt, the pandemic has been incredibly challenging for people in the NHS and beyond the NHS. Um, and I don't want to minimise that at all. But I do think at the same time that it has unlocked some change. And we certainly spoke to people who said, you know, things that were would have taken years got done in weeks in the in the in the pandemic so you know hopefully the nhs can hold on to some of that energy some of that ability to adapt and change and spot opportunities i think it's interesting you said that some things have gone through a lot quicker uh some of the red tape was overnight gone especially some of the virtual working just to touch on what you were saying so i think you were touching on about open access follow-up for prostate patients um and it is something i think um, where I've worked, well, sorry, where I'm working now, they've wanted to implement for quite a while, but now to reduce the amount of patients coming back to hospital, and almost, I think, as what we've touched on in previous um, podcasts to Joe and I, that for people like me in a review team as an advanced practitioner to take on more roles, it might be something that for open access follow-up for some of the lower risk patients who potentially might not have too many questions, or they may have a positive result from hormone treatment or radiotherapy someone like me could take that on so actually it's more experience for me but if the patient does need a clinician support it doesn't have to be their clinical nurse specialist or it doesn't have to be their consultant or a registrar working in the clinic it could be someone like me or someone in a review team so just uh, i think it's really good it, it's really nice to see something that is quite simple uh, on paper i would say i mean if it is just looking up a test result i think anybody would want that Instead of having to call your GP, wait for an hour, not get a result, call back next week, wait another hour, not get a result. Yeah. As you said, it's that anxiety, something that I've, I've seen with patients who have come back and said, oh, I've got my PSA result today and they've been waiting a month to yeah. see it. It's, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. And I, I think, I think done well, it's, it's one of those beautiful no brainers, I think. I think it does need to be done well. You know, patients do need to be able to see their results online, but also we would always encourage there to be a kind of educational workshop before people go on to that. So they're given some education so that they understand, you know, if they're seeing their clinical teams less often, actually they need to understand a bit more about themselves and what side effects there might be and how they stay healthy and all those kind of things and, and what red flags there might be. Um, so making sure that upfront education gets done and that there's proper safety netting in the clinical team so that, you know, if, if a man forgets his PSA or, or whatever, or a PSA result comes back and it's high, that we, there is safety netting to make sure that a clinician is checking that result and is checking that that result has come in. Um, but get those things right. And I think it's a wonderful thing that, that men prefer and works better for clinical systems. I definitely think as well, if, if staff are freed up to maybe work in different areas. So, um, you know, for therapeutic radiographers, we have some in the country, but not many, but who are out in primary care. So they are looking and supporting patients with long-term side effects as a result of radiotherapy. And I definitely think that that is an area that we could help and support patients. And again, if patients are educated, about maybe some of their long-term side effects, even thinking about imaging, MR Linux, you know, the fact that patients should be being consented with access to their radiotherapy treatment plan. Um, it's something I've kind of 
thought long and hard about for years and years and years. But, you know, if you have a patient who is sitting down with their oncologist, with their radiotherapy treatment plan, really identifying what is being irradiated, what are the potential short term, long term side effects, personalised care for that patient. I think it would be such a better experience and pathway. And as you said, Amy, you know, educating those patients. And it isn't it isn't the case for everyone. You know, there there are people in in and I would speak for myself of having cancer. I literally I it was as though I'd never been someone who had had me, any medical training whatsoever. I was literally going, yeah, I'll do whatever you want me to do. <laughs> didn't ask any questions, just left the room. didn't even like think about the next steps. And obviously there are people who are like that. And I also know friends, colleagues who've had cancer who have been totally on it, deciding who's going to treat them, what treatment they're going to have and have forward planned already what they're going to do if they experience any long term side effects. So everyone is so different. And I think, you know, I'm obviously and everyone, I think, within radiotherapy and working within the profession is passionate about personalised care. But it's again, having those resources to be able to do it. And I think as Naaman perfectly put, if he if his time was limited then, you know, where could he be best utilised within the cancer pathway and the skills and knowledge that, that therapeutic radiographers and people like Naaman and advanced practitioners have. So, Amy, moving on, because I'm sure time is ticking on. You're getting ready to go to bed. <laughs> if you had to give us some top tips about for anyone really in the audience who's thinking about doing an improvement programme or changing something within service, what advice would you give them? Because I, I know lots of motivated, passionate therapeutic radiographers, diagnostic radiographers who want to make changes. But what is it that they need to do first off? Yeah. My top tip is find your allies. Don't think you can do it on your own. And I say this from experience. I think that sometimes, you know, in, if I reflect on work that I have done, sometimes when you're not sure if it's going to work or not, your instinct is to not involve other people because, you know, it would be embarrassing if it then flopped. But actually, it's so much more powerful if you involve other people and, and you know, involving people in an honest way where you're going, I don't know if this is going to work, but, you know, and I think that, you know, people, um, you know, buoy you up when you're feeling down and, and you have different skill sets. You know, we are not super human we can't do everything recognizing what you're good at and what you're not so good at and where you might be able to pull on somebody else who who i don't know can do your audit and somebody else who can help you make your business case actually find allies do it together it will be more fun and it will be more effective well, thank you, Amy. That's really, really good advice for anyone listening. I think it transfers into any sort of aspect of healthcare, really, doesn't it? Um, so um, I'll just say thank you for everyone for listening to this podcast. Um, your hosts today have been uh, me, Naaman, and Joe. Uh, huge thank you again to our guest, Amy Rylance. Um, if you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted uh, along with the podcast and any links to resources and literature that we've discussed in this podcast as well. Um, to receive your CPD digital badge, please complete the form linked to the podcast 
Um, our next guest to feature will be Sarah Liange, uh, who will be discussing her experience of radiotherapy as a patient and a support page she founded called Ticking Off Breast Cancer. Um, so thank you, Amy, and thank you, Joe, for being on, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank Good you. night. Night. Thank you.